This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. A number of years ago when I was living in Boston, I had the opportunity to visit an older friend who had a home on Mount Desert Island in Maine, where I'm originally from. A chance to spend a few days in and around Bar Harbor brought back to me memories of Maine summers, fields strewn with wildflowers disappearing off into dark forests, and of course, hours of sitting on the craggy rocks high above the sea and watching the waves crash and becoming unavoidably covered by the salty spray. My friend was a writer and a great garden aficionado and had extensively studied gardens in America and Europe and led a number of tours herself of important gardens throughout England and the British Isles. One day, as we were sitting on her great porch overlooking Somes Sound, she announced, I want to show you an extraordinary garden, the Abbey Aldrich Rockefeller Garden. It's not that far. The garden in neighboring Seal Harbor is part of the former estate of John D. Rockefeller and his wife, Abby. The Rockefeller Garden was constructed between 1926 and 1930 and indeed has become known as one of America's most famous gardens. The garden married the vision of Abby Aldrich Rockefeller with that of one of the greatest landscape designers of the early 20th century. It was, my friend explained, one of the greatest creations of Beatrix Ferrand. As we drove along the curving roads, I stared back a little expressionless. I didn't know who Beatrix Ferrand was, which I finally admitted as I was pulled along. Oh, you will. I was told very firmly in that decisive, dry New England tone that I knew so well. And my friend was right. I did come to know who Beatrix Ferrand was. And if you don't, I want you to know who she was too. Beatrix Farron's story begins in the Gilded Age, and if anything, the through story is one of a determined woman dedicated to ignoring what society told her and creating work that, quite simply, left all those who noticed in awe. She created an entry for herself into a profession of landscape design that was at the time dominated by men. At the time, any women who expressed a passion for garden design were written off as dabblers and not taken seriously. Beatrix Ferrand had no time for that. She was her own woman. Her business card read simply, Beatrix Ferrand. And throughout her life and career, she insisted on not using Miss or Mrs. to further define her status. She was Beatrix Ferrand, and as her biographers have noted, she was very much her own brand.
I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we take a look at some of the stories, secrets, style, and even occasionally some scandal in the world of Gilded Age America, Belle Epoque France, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. On a rather brisk day in January of 1921, Beatrix Farrand stood gazing out over a neglected plot of land in the Georgetown neighborhood of Washington, D.C. As she began to wander around and explore the property, mud clinging to her sturdy boots, she wondered just how she could transform this overgrown, hilly, watery plot into an oasis of beauty and visual delight that her clients were hiring her to do. The land was called the Oaks, named for the old towering trees that once filled in the land but now were left to only a few. Her clients were the diplomat Robert Bliss and his wife Mildred, who, after serving in Europe, wished to return to the United States with a country house of their own and appropriate gardens reminiscent of those in England, Italy, and France. They chose McKim, Mead, and White to renovate the decaying Georgian-style manor house, but as far as the gardens, there was no other possible choice except Beatrix Farrand to create the landscape surrounding the house. By the 1920s, Beatrix Farrand was firmly established as the garden architect of choice for some of America's most prestigious gardens, both public and private. She had designed gardens for the university campuses of Princeton and Yale and even Occidental College in California. She consulted with President and Mrs. Wilson for work on the East Garden at the White House, and her work included projects at the Manhattan townhouse of famed financier J.P. Morgan and a wide selection of gardens of the socially elite on Long Island and in Connecticut and Maine. And she had helped her aunt, the great writer Edith Wharton, develop her vision for the extraordinary gardens at the Mount in Lenox, Massachusetts. Her career spanned over 50 years and included over 200 commissions, a precious selection of which exist today. She had quite literally broken new ground in this profession as landscape architect, which was deeply dominated by men. For Beatrix Farrand, so much of her training and education came from her own perseverance and self-reliance since there was nowhere to go to train in that Gilded Age New York of her young adulthood if a young woman wanted a career, much less a career in landscape architecture. As Beatrix began to walk through the tangled mass of brush and untended greenery at the Oaks, she knew she was going to have to bring her complete arsenal of skills, talent, vision, and artistry to bear to make the transformation her clients wanted. Farrand had studied it all, botany, horticulture, engineering, and architecture, and yet she still approached her work with the eye of an impressionist painter. The term she chose for herself was landscape gardener. Her gardens were often inspired by classical examples from European tradition. She was deeply influenced by the examples of the great 18th century French garden designer André Le Nôtre at the palaces of Vaux-le-Vicomte and Versailles. But the gardens she created had something fresh and new. They had her eye. The ultimate gardens that she created for Robert and Mildred Bliss, which, in all, took more than 20 years to complete, came to be known, as did the renovated estate, as Dumbarton Oaks, which has been meticulously preserved and can be visited today. 
To create her masterpiece, Farron chose the challenging and revolutionary route of following the natural topography of the land. She created a garden to fit the land, not destroy the land to create an unnatural imitation. Her innovative design resulted in stairways, pools, arches, and bridges, all connecting a series of garden rooms, terraces, and vistas, ranging from the intimate to the breathtakingly dramatic. Diana Vreeland, the great fashion editor, famously felt strongly that in great design, the eye has to travel. And that principle could easily be applied to a Farrand garden. Disappearing vistas, hints of almost hidden sculpture, shifting bursts of color move one's eye through her spaces. Writers have often commented that a Beatrix Farron garden, and particularly her stunning work at Dumbarton Oaks, seem to exist in a space not limited by time, past or present. She offers the garden as a place to be with one's thoughts, to find calm and focus in the natural beauty surrounding one, and integrate it into one's own being. Once she had identified her passion to become a landscape architect, Beatrix Farron did not just walk into a profession and begin work. Instead of accepting marriage as a Gilded Age debutante, she envisioned a career for herself and went out and created it. And how she did it and what she did is as intricate, studied, powerful, and full of beauty as the magnificent gardens she made. Any good walking tour has a few secrets, a couple of places that visitors don't expect, places that may hold a special story or significance that may surprise them. One of my favorite moments in my walking tour of Edith Wharton's New York is near the end of the tour as we circle closer and closer to the tour's end in Washington Square Park. I stop the group in front of a row of classically proportioned Greek Revival townhouses on quiet, shaded East 11th Street, just a couple of blocks from the famous Washington Square Arch in Greenwich Village. Pointing to a discreet plaque, often unnoticed at the entrance to number 21, I continue my tour narrative. And on June 19th, 1872, at the beginning of the Gilded Age, Beatrix Farrand was born. Right here. Often my group looks back at me with that same expression that I gave my garden-loving friend back in Seal Harbor when I first heard Beatrix Farron's name. But then I proceed to share her story. Beatrix Farron, born Beatrix Jones on that June day of 1872, was perhaps the most unlikely person to become such an important figure in the male-dominated world of landscape and garden design during the Gilded Age. She was, after all, born into one of Knickerbocker, New York's old families, a family with Dutch and English roots, and she was born into a society with a certain set of expectations for any young girl or woman. Expectations that most young women of the day found it challenging to shake off. She would be expected to be educated by governesses and tutors, make her social debut at age 18 at Sherry's or Delmonico's, thereby signaling to the corresponding male population that she was now available and ready for marriage. And most importantly, she was certainly not expected to have a career of any sort. None of these social expectations worked for Beatrix Jones, and she worked hard to create the life that she did. 
Her family were the Joneses, indeed, the very old New York family with which, it is said, that most socially aware folks should try to keep up. Her mother, Mary, always known as Minnie, was from good, solid Philadelphia stock that included Revolutionary War heroes, and her father, handsome but ultimately philandering, was indeed a Jones, and whose younger sister was the exceptional American writer, Edith Wharton. Beatrix's mother, Minnie, a subject of a future show of her own, was not an artist, but she understood them. As Beatrix was growing up, her mother was noted for her Sunday afternoon salons in that drawing room of 21 East 11th Street that included guests such as Augusta St. Gaudens, John Singer Sargent, John Lafarge, Teddy Roosevelt, and her dear friend, Henry James himself. James took on the sort of role of uncle to the young Beatrix watching her grow up. She was known affectionately to the great Henry James as Trix. Photographs of the young Beatrix show her as tall, her height likely from her father, quite serious and somewhat expressionless. We see her wearing the elegant gowns of the period, no doubt bought in Paris, and which were the undisputed uniforms for the society events that she was expected to attend. Beatrix attended the various balls and cotillions in the palaces along 1890s Fifth Avenue, including Mrs. Astor's famed ball in 1892 that triggered the nickname The 400. Her social world ranged from Sherry's Ballroom to Tuxedo Park, north of the city, the social outpost just, as some said, at the far reaches of civilized society. She made her debut in 1890, and no suitors appeared. One can imagine, perhaps much to her relief. Beatrix had other plans. As the Gilded Age swung into full-on spectacle and drama in the 1880s, society migrated up the coast to escape the New York summers. Their destination had been called Fifth Avenue sur Mer, and it, of course, was the social battlefield of Newport, Rhode Island. The Jones family had its foothold in the world of Newport's Bellevue Avenue for sure, but Beatrix's parents, Freddie and Minnie, preferred to travel much farther north to the enclave of Bar Harbor on Mount Desert Island in Maine, which was becoming a rustic yet dignified social enclave. Here, a social structure was in place, of course, of dinners and dances and plenty of see and be seen. But here, the cottages with their wide porches and steps leading down to the sea were not of marble. They were of wind-washed clabbered, faded by the salt spray and the sun. Beatrix, in her escapes to Mount Desert Island as a young girl, loved exploring the nearby woods, collecting plants and rooting her own cuttings in containers lined up on porch railings. She became fascinated with the native plants of Maine, and one of her trademarks in creating some of her greatest work was to highlight and showcase native plants of a given area in her designs. It's hard to pinpoint just when Beatrix decided that she wanted the career that she did. There are suggestions that she was inspired by the gardening and horticultural journals beginning to appear at the time. But perhaps it was an innate love of the natural world combined with her unique artistic way of seeing that bubbled to the surface. 
Biographical writings about Beatrix report that she liked to say she came from five generations of gardeners. Her ancestors included Ebenezer Stevens, a Revolutionary War hero who kept a famous New York garden, which was said to be the finest in the city. And indeed, her grandmother was known for her hundreds of roses grown in beds around her cottage home in Newport. Gardens were, of course, an important part of any social hostess's responsibility, along with the collections of porcelain and silver. But any women who showed any significant serious interest were ignored. A woman's interest in gardens was often imagined to be consisting of dreamy walks along bright floral paths in search of a few buds to clip and adorn a Tiffany vase in an overstuffed drawing room. The world for Beatrix likely began to change as a result of a trip she took to the great Chicago Columbian exhibition, the Great World's Fair, in 1893 when she was 21. In her party was the great Charles Sprague Sargent, a professor of botany at Harvard who may well have ignited her latent talent. Sargent was also the director of the new Arnold Arboretum outside Boston, Massachusetts, a vast, now nearly 300-acre natural reserve acting as a research laboratory and public park. The Arboretum had been designed by the great Frederick Law Olmsted in collaboration with Sargent. Seeing Beatrix's deep commitment to learn, Sargent invited her to come to Boston to live with him and his wife, and he would teach her privately the science of botany and horticulture. It's been written that Beatrix's visit to the World Fair opened her eyes to not only the elements of classical European design, but those of Asian and particularly Japanese garden philosophy as well. While living with Sargent, it was arranged for Beatrix to visit the famous Olmsted Studio in Brookline, Massachusetts. At the time, of course, those architects filling seats at drafting tables were, of course, all men. Following a year of intense study with Sargent using the Arboretum as her own laboratory, Beatrix took Sargent's advice for his star pupil and went to Europe to begin to observe and analyze some of the great classical gardens for inspiration and further analysis. Beatrix had traveled regularly to Europe with her family, but this tour was different. This tour laid the groundwork for her career. Much of what was considered garden design in America during the 19th century was focused on an attempt to copy the gardens of the great French Loire chateaus, the Italian villas of the High Renaissance, and of course the great country houses dotting England's countryside. The relationship between Beatrix's mother Minnie and her father Frederick had deteriorated as the result of her father's uncontrollable philandering, and the idea of months traveling in Europe with her mother was a welcome thought. In the spring of 1895, Beatrix and Minnie set sail for a five-month journey through France, Italy, Germany, and England, and their explorations included a special trip to Algiers in northern Africa. Beatrix's goal was to see as much as they could with as much variety as they could, and now, unlike in any previous European travels, she had a trained eye to interpret what she was seeing. It's impossible to combine the notion of French, Italian, and English gardens all into one general European garden category. Each style created over the centuries had a unique and specific point of view and individual philosophy. 
The classic French garden emphasized symmetry and a geometrical design, often with repeating patterns created by the sculpted deep green boxwoods lining the gravel paths. Italian philosophy sees the garden as an extension of the villa itself, often a series of outdoor rooms using architectural elements of covered grottos, dramatic stairways, and the all-important element of moving water, either cascading downward or in bubbling fountains. English gardens, often full of great washes of color, can be wilder in feeling with a more natural blending into the surrounding landscape. Specifically designed areas defined by low hedges can be offset by colorful beds of flowers or plots of vegetables or herbs. Beatrix's travels allowed her to study the gardens of the Villa d'Este in Tivoli, the Villa Medici in Rome, and in Florence the dramatic Boboli Gardens of the Pitti Palace and the Villa Gambaria outside Florence among dozens of others. The study of Italian villas and their gardens involved traveling down hot, dusty, ill-marked routes, often to be told that the more out-of-the-way examples were unable to be visited without prior arrangements. Edith Wharton, Beatrix's aunt, made her own journeys to many of the same villas and gardens and published one of her most important non-fiction works, Italian Villas and Their Gardens, ten years later in 1904. The trip to Algiers, with its elegant Moorish architecture and style, was specifically to view the extensive Jardin d'Essailles. This nearly 80-acre expanse was created in 1832, with its long vistas lined with plane trees, Italian fig trees, enormous stalks of bamboo, and palms with fronds brushing the sky. It all impressed Beatrix so much, her biographers note that she wrote in her diary, we had to drag ourselves away. One of the most important influences on Beatrix's developing vision of landscape design was the work of the British painter, garden designer, and writer Gertrude Jekyll. Beatrix and Minnie, leaving southern Europe for England, paid a visit to Jekyll's great garden at Mumstead Wood in Surrey. Beatrix's writing and diaries of the trip neglect to tell us if she actually met Jekyll herself, but she was clearly influenced by her writings and her work. Gertrude Jekyll, a strong proponent of the arts and crafts movement, had worked as a craftswoman and impressionist painter before taking up garden design in her 50s as the result of her declining eyesight. Jekyll is credited as being the first garden designer to approach her work as a visual artist would, with a definite impressionist eye and sensibility. In her designs, great washes of color in her plantings caught the visitor's eye just as would the strokes of a painter's brush. Beatrix herself wrote an essay published in 1907 called The Garden as a Picture, in which she says a garden large or small must be treated in an impressionist manner. And in other writings, she notes plants are to the gardener what a palette is to the painter. A further influence for Beatrix at the time were the writings of William Robinson, an Irish garden journalist. It has been suggested that Robinson's idea to allow the garden to become less formal as it moves away from the house and begin to blend into any surrounding forest or landscape was completely revolutionary at the time, and an idea that Beatrix herself adapted and incorporated into her own interpretations. 
Returning home to America late in 1895, Beatrix hired tutors herself from Columbia University to coach and teach her aspects of engineering to be able to complete her actual training. Her botanical and horticultural work with Sargent combined with her analytical observations in Europe and now with the more technical aspects of architecture and engineering in her professional arsenal, Beatrix Jones was ready for her first clients. And now it's time to take a short break, but I'll be back to continue our story. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and today's show focuses on the life and work of the great Beatrix Ferrand, America's first successful female landscape gardener. One of the ways an American landscape architect got work in the last years of the 19th century was to be hired for public commissions. Great parks and public spaces that would function in a way as an advertisement for one's work of more private and residential spaces. The trouble was, of course, that all these went to men. Although Beatrix was uninterested in the life in the society that her family and New York's elite could provide, her social connections served her well in one regard. They brought her a steady stream of clients to launch her business. Beatrix launched her studio on the top floor of her mother's house on East 11th Street, the very one in front of which I stop on my tours. Once she set up her studio in those small, cramped fourth-floor rooms, work from contacts from her aunt Edith Wharton, as well as her mother Minnie's circle, began to come in. In fact, when the fledgling professional association of the American Society of Landscape Gardeners was founded in 1899, Beatrix was the only woman among the founding directors. The connection between Beatrix and her aunt, Edith Wharton, is an important one, and another one without which perhaps Beatrix's vision and career would not have evolved as they did. Edith Wharton and her sister-in-law, Minnie, Beatrix's mother, became close and an indispensable support for each other once Minnie had divorced Frederick and Edith herself had divorced Teddy Wharton. 
Writers have suggested that the strength and resolve summoned by her mother in the wake of the divorce gave Beatrix her own sense of determination and unwavering drive. Edith Wharton spent many years crisscrossing the Atlantic, absorbing the ancient cultures of France and Italy in particular, and shared her passions with her niece Beatrix. There had been a long gap between the birth of Edith and her brothers, and with only a 10-year difference in age between Edith and Beatrix, Edith and Beatrix functioned more, it has been said, as sisters than aunt and niece. Longing to leave the social confines of Newport and New York herself, Edith Wharton and her husband Teddy bought a 115-acre plot of land in Lenox, Massachusetts and began to construct a New England version of an English country house with significant French influence on the design and Italian-inspired gardens. The Mount was Edith Wharton's own bit of Europe created on the shore of a serene and remote New England lake. Edith enlisted Beatrix to advise on certain aspects of the gardens. The only significant piece of the actual grounds that Beatrix designed was the long avenue of sugar maples winding up from the public road past the white gates to the forecourt of the grand house itself. Beatrix had also designed a kitchen garden to one side of the house, which was never built. It's certain, though, that with her keen eye and shared passions, she advised her aunt in the many discussions, plans, and possibilities of shaping the glorious gardens at the Mount. In 1912, Beatrix received her first public commission, the Wyman Garden at the Graduate School of Princeton University. Designing a space that combined not only trees and flowers to beautify the space, she focused on ultimate functionality, continually considering the natural movement of students and professors as they would inhabit the space. And it was in 1915 that she was commissioned by the New York Botanical Garden to imagine and design a garden space for which the institution hoped would become one of the finest collections of roses in the world, nearly 7,000 species in all. It was in this daunting project that she recalled a particular lesson that she had learned in her apprenticeship with Charles Sargent, to create a garden to mirror the land, not the other way around. This was the guiding principle that she was to use so dramatically and successfully when she tackled Dumbarton Oaks over five years later. Beatrix Jones remained unmarried and dedicated to building her career until 1913 when she met, and as a surprise to nearly all, married the Yale historian and scholar Max Farrand. She was 41 years old. Beatrix was intensely private about her life outside her career. There are few personal writings and few intimate reflections. Writers note that Beatrix and Max seemed deeply compatible, well-suited to each other's temperament and style, and shared an intellect and dedication in their respective work. Their marriage was to last over 30 years. In 1927, a surprise opportunity appeared that was to change both their lives. Max was offered the prestigious position of the first director of the Huntington Library in Berkeley, California, and reluctantly, Beatrix left her beloved East Coast for California to accompany him. While Max flourished in his new role, Beatrix found the relocation challenging. Garden design on the West Coast was dominated by others, and she was far away now from her tight circle and networks of social contacts that were providing her most important work. 
Beatrix spent much of the 1920s traveling back and forth across the country by train to maintain her East Coast connections and work as much as she could. One of her greatest commissions, which we can still see today, arrived during this period. In 1922, philanthropist and noted art collector John D. Rockefeller and his wife Abby traveled to Asia. Not only had they returned with a precious selection of sculpture and objects of art to add to their world-class collection, they returned fascinated by the Asian philosophies of landscape and design. The Rockefellers hired Beatrix to create a most special garden as part of their estate called the Airy on Mount Desert Island in Maine. Beatrix worked closely with Abby Aldrich Rockefeller to construct an extraordinary experience. One passes through a Chinese moon gate and follows a trail known as the Spirit Path lined with dramatic Korean sculptures of deities. The path leads past smaller, nearly hidden groves with trickling streams, moss-covered banks, and sculpture from the Rockefellers' Asian travels. At the garden's very core, the visitor is unexpectedly led into an expansive flower garden bursting with vibrant color, over 600 plants, in contrast to the quiet and contemplative approach through the forest. The Rockefeller Garden had allowed Beatrix to again follow the land, create spaces of quietude as well as drama, and incorporate not only elements of her beloved Maine, but the ancient cultures of China, Japan, and Korea into a seamless whole. In the early 1940s, Max resigned from the Huntington and they returned to the East Coast, but it was Beatrix who truly came home. She and Max worked to transform Reef Point and the surrounding gardens into a study center, library, and living laboratory for research and training. She at last came to work on and bring her vision to perhaps the most personal space she had ever known. In failing health, Max Farron died at Reef Point in 1945, and Beatrix continued to manage the property as long as she could. A lack of endowment, rising costs, and demand forced her to finally sell the property and dismantle the gardens. Her work was not lost, however, and her most precious plants were preserved and distributed to allow two other gardens to rise on the island. Her main garden administrator at Reef Point and his wife invited Beatrix to come to live with them. The modest estate called Garland Farm was to be Beatrix's last home, and now in her early 80s, she was not ready to rest, and she created one final garden. Filled with the deep blues and purples of Clematis and Iris, she created a final garden painting in the plots over which her sitting room and small apartment now looked. Beatrix Farrand had created a career out of her own passion and her own will. As I noted at the beginning of the episode, it spanned 50 years and included over 200 projects and commissions, both public and private. Beatrix Farrand was as dedicated to creating public spaces where all people could enjoy the brilliance of nature as she was to the more private residential spaces of her cherished clients. She was unquestionably recognized as one of the most influential garden designers of the early 20th century and was awarded honorary degrees from Yale University and Smith College. She passed away at Garland Farm on February 27, 1959. So just what is a Beatrix Farrand garden? 
After struggling to put my finger quite on it, I asked one of her biographers, Judith Tankard, whose work on Farron has just been revised and brought back into print. Judith told me she didn't have a style. Each garden was an individual response, and that response was to a client's wishes and vision, but also a vision that incorporated the topography and natural resources she was given. That said, if we look closely, there are some things that do emerge. We can see a sense of symmetry and balance that she so admired in the classical French style of Le Notre. We can see the washes of changing color that give her gardens vibrancy and life due to the color theories of Gertrude Jekyll. And we can see the influence of William Robinson, whose revolutionary idea to have a formal garden slowly recede into the wild as the eye follows it into the distance. Her gardens reflected her love and use of native plantings wherever and whenever she could use them, from California wildflowers to the lush ferns and shrubs of seacoast Maine. We see her incomparable skills of engineering, architecture and space planning come together to reflect, as others have suggested, the perfect blend of beauty and utility. But then there was a last, almost undefinable element that was Beatrix Farron's alone. There was her eye, the sensibility unique to her alone that she used to construct a space to surprise, delight, calm, and inspire. She did all that with the eye of an intuitive artist whose palette was indeed the natural world. A recent documentary detailing Farron's life, Beatrix Farron's American Landscapes, quotes from her writings about Dumbarton Oaks. I want to keep it as poetic as possible and make it the kind of place where thrushes sing and dreams are dreamt. For me, a great garden is a place that unlocks the soul, a place where the past can be honored, but where the future is always possible. It's clear that in the work of Beatrix Ferrand, overcoming the obstacles that she did and creating spaces that we still enjoy today, that Beatrix Ferrand allows us to see that future too. Thank you so much for joining me today for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media. Join me every two weeks for another look well beyond the glitter in the gold. I invite you to become a patron of the show. Your support truly helps me to continue to research and write and produce the episodes. Visit patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability.